You're listening to TIP. I was living in the West Side and I noticed many people were doing a two-bedroom, one-bath and then converting it to three-bedrooms, two-bath and all of a sudden they can get 100,000 more. And i like, I want to do that. And that's how I got the confidence because I'm like, if they are doing it, I can do it. And I knew values and I knew sales. And I just, I said, I can do it. And I did one and it went perfect. I did two and so on. So every year, I kept consistent. Hey, everybody. In this week's episode, I got to sit down with Marissa Solis to talk about her incredible real estate career. We discussed what it was like growing up in a family of successful entrepreneurs in Mexico, what it was like moving to the US at 19, how she got started in real estate and moved on to build a thriving flipping business, how she handled the 2008 great financial crisis, and what her plans are for her company, Nila, in the next decade. Marissa is the CEO and managing partner at Neela Group and has more than 35 years of experience as a real estate investor in Southern California. With her leadership and expertise, she has successfully closed over 300 profitable property acquisition transactions. She's dedicated her career to providing a better quality of life through housing and developing beautiful and enjoyable homes. She holds a bachelor's degree in business administration and a small business certificate from USC. Marissa is also a mother to five successful men including Jonathan Barr, who I recently interviewed. If you've not seen any of the videos from the 2022 Reconvene event, Marissa was one of the crowd favorites who spoke at the conference. She's got an incredible story, and as they say, success leaves clues. And there are a lot of clues for what it takes to be successful in real estate in this episode. And so, without further delay, let's jump into this week's episode with Marissa Solis. You are listening to Real Estate 101 by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Patrick Donnelly, interview successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Real Estate 101 Show. I'm your host today, Patrick Donnelly, and I am very excited and honored to welcome to the show Marissa Solis. Marissa, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be in this podcast, Patrick. We were talking a little bit before we got started. I'm really honored that this is your first podcast that you've done. I found out about you by watching all of the Reconvene videos that Moses Kagan put out, which was a great convention that he puts on. And I saw yours and I was like, I really want to get Marissa on the show, reached out to you. I ended up interviewing your son, Jonathan Barr, which I had no idea that you guys were related. We started talking. He started talking about reconvene. And he said, yeah, my mom was on stage. And I was like, well, who was your mom? And you know, he said, Marissa. And I was like, oh my gosh, I really want to get her on the show. So he connected us. So I'm really happy for Jonathan for putting you and I together. So I just want to thank you first for your time today and telling your story. You've got a really awesome and amazing story that we're going to get into here. But I I first wanted to talk to you a little bit about your family. I know family is hugely important to you. I wanted to hear about your life growing up. I know that you came from a family of successful business people and entrepreneurs And I wanted to hear about just your parents, what it was like growing up and how they influenced you in your business life today. Great. Thank you so much for having me here. It's I decided to share my story. I believe that a lot of my values are from my parents. So it's imagine a home with 10 children, mom and dad, and business running from the home and everywhere. 
our days will start at 5 a.m., you know, because that's the time our family wakes up. And so what I learned from them is discipline, consistency, honoring your work, building great relationships. They had a lot of friends, a lot of business associates. They were very popular, almost like a celebrity, but in business. But they were very much into being close to everyone they were with. Like I remember for Christmas, they would have the table for like maybe like 300 gifts for everybody. And they were hand delivered back on the day. Relationships and was the key for everything. And talking to my father one day, I said, you know, Papa, what make you so successful? And he said, I always give people what they wanted first and then myself. So I come out with growing in a family like that and also giving back, giving back to the needy, to people that are in need or just anyone. Like if somebody sons got sick or something, they will put the money for the medicine or they will refer them to a doctor. So I was very blessed to grow out in a family, in a large family where you need to survive. Otherwise, you don't need. You need to really put yourself almost in a fight mode. <laughs> Most of the time to survive, you know, and it was just great growing up in nature and traveling on the weekends, camping. It was fun. So what kind of businesses were they involved in? My family is the largest meat producer in Mexico, so the cattle business. But let me tell you an interesting thing about cattle business. We basically split the cattle because we will buy them. And they still buy them at a much lower weight. And then you feed them so they gain more weight. So basically you add value by making them bigger and a little fatty. And that's how you you flip the, a cattle and make, it, you know, make a profit out of that. Did you help out in the family business growing up? Yes. When I was in first grade, I was already counting money. I was checking that all the deposits were in. And the checks were out. So I was basically my mother's assistant. She was the CFO of the company. And it was from the house. We had an office and we all worked from there. Were you the oldest child? I'm the oldest girl. So I told my mom, I won't make the dishes, but I'll help you with the account. Yeah. So where, where in Mexico was that, that you grew up? Uh, Culiacán, Sinaloa, which is in the north part of Mexico. When you graduated from high school, did you have any career aspirations of joining the family business or did you want to do something separate and different from your family? At my age, uh, when I was growing up, there was a big difference between being a son and a daughter. And I realized that my journey will be different for two reasons. Number one, I didn't want to be traditionally a wealthy wife with a housekeeper and that was my life or living in a different country where opportunity was more equal. So the first opportunity I have, I met Jonathan and Jeffrey's dad and, you know, I married in Mexico and I came to live in the United States because I just felt like that was my journey and I knew I wasn't going to have the same opportunities because I can see it, feel it. And I didn't want to put my parents in a position where there was, you know, like fights or something within the family. So I, I knew I have to do my own. 
I saw that you had a degree in journalism in Mexico. Was that a possibility that you were considering at a young age? That was my dream, but my mother said, listen, you're not going to make money that way. You're going to go into business, study business. And I, I was a very good child. I say what my parents say, to ask me to do. And that's how, but I did study and I used to write in the paper in Mexico, even though I was under 18, but somebody else signed it, but I was a writer. And I just love everything related to to be more profound in a story and just like get into into what it is and what's possible. And I do apply it in my business, believe it or not, that sense of, you know, discovering and creating. Are you a big reader? Do you love to read? I love to read, yes. I don't read as much as I used to because it's just I'm pretty busy and you know, it's kind of everything I'm reading is about the industry and keeping up with everything. But I would like to spend more time reading. So how old were you when you got married and around what year was that when you first came to the United States? I came in 1983. I was 19 years old and I became a mother at 21. And then you also went to USC and graduated in small business. What was that like? Were you, did you have Jonathan at that point when you were going to school? I did it much later, but it was more like a, for a small business and they train you in different, in all aspects of the business. And I was probably one of the people that participate the most in the class because I had the most business experience and, you know, it was great. It was just to make me more aware of things and have a, a bigger perspective. When you graduated from there, did you start your own small businesses? You probably had that in mind that you were going to do something entrepreneurial, I presume. Did you start something on your own around then? Actually, my career started, I got my real estate license when I was expecting Jonathan. So I was 20 when I got my license. And the way I started my career is by being a real estate agent. And my first sale was a for sale by owner. I told my first husband, I can sell this condo. All of the sudden I said, I can sell it. It's like, but you're not licensed. And then I said, I can sell it on my own. So I put it in the newspapers. Back in the day, it was like this, the Spanish newspaper, La Opinion. I put it there and I got like three calls and I had one showing. But I didn't let go of that join and I sold it to them. You know, many times they wanted to back out of the deal, but I keep communicating with them and they just until we close the deal. And at the end of the closing, because back on the day you will go to escrow, you know, she's like, I'm $500 short. And I'm like, I can lend it to you for three months. So I worked at a credit and we closed and she paid the money within a month. But you know, I just like, we can't do it because we don't have enough money. I'm very creative. I resolve any situation that I need to resolve. So you had a 100% conversion rate. You had one person that looked at the property. Tell me some of it, like, what did you, had you done any kind of sales? Or like you said, you had had experience with the cattle business. Did that come into play a little bit with learning how to sell real estate? You know, I had a great experience when I was 17. And I was doing fundraising for a school that needed funds. And I didn't know what I was doing, but they just like, 
I knew somebody and say, can you help us with this? And later I found that they gave me the most difficult account because, you know, they say maybe, you know, like, I don't know what, but I got the most difficult account, which was all the government officials. And, you know, I was just able to raise the money. I, the first time I like, oh yeah, I'll come back tomorrow and pick up the check. And I went back and no check. The next time I'm like, no, you know, they will say, come back. I say, well, today is my deadline. So I need to take that check today. I learned very quickly that, okay, that didn't work. So I'm just going to get the money now. And every time I make a mistake, I learned from that situation and implemented right away because I mean, I always tell my kids, I'm the person that has made the most mistakes because I, the most experience in the family and it's just something happens. I learn from it, implement it. And that's how I live my life. Even being a mother too. I, I mean, I can make a lot of mistakes too. Yeah. But you don't view them as mistakes. It sounds like it's more like a learning experience that you gain something from. Yes. Yes. So that first condo that you sold, it was your own. At that point, you did not have your real estate agent's license, correct? No. And I so didn't. tell us what happened next. You you sold the place and... Um, I mean, once I sold the condo, many of the owners wanted for me to sell the condos. I like, okay, let me get my real estate license. So as soon as I got my license, I got a couple of listings. And my journey was, I always been focused on my family. So I, being a mother was very important to me. What I start doing is just doing like two flips a year. So it allowed me to take my kids with me. Even when I had an open house, I had my kids with me because it was my project. So if somebody wanted to work with me, it's, I'm a full package. I'm not just Marissa, it's me and my kids. It was never an issue because, I mean, they were good kids and, I was able to still be with them and do what I needed to do. And that's how all my boys love real estate. Yeah. So that they had a great education just growing up really at a super young age at your knee, like learning the business from the ground up, literally. When you got your real estate license and you had some of the people in the condominium complex ask you to, to sell their condos, I presume that went well. Is that when you first started to get the itch for real estate and think like this could be a career? Yeah, I think one of the gifts that I have, you know, when I work with sellers, I try to get the, the best offer and the most money possible within reason. And that's kind of my passion to multiply money. I think multiplying money for people, it's just allow them to do what they need to do. And then for me, it gives me a sense of responsibility and honoring my commitment with them. It's something that I really enjoy. So at that point, you said you were buying one or two houses to flip a year. Did you get started with your husband at that time or were you doing these deals on your own? I was doing these deals on my own because for me, it was my career. So I I was doing it on my own. So I wanted to hear more about that. How did you get the confidence to do those first flips? There's a lot of real estate agents that are around the industry, but they never get involved in doing their own deals. Tell us about how you got the confidence just to do that first deal, the first flip, and a little bit about what that was like, that process for you. What I did, I was looking at other people that were doing that. I was living in the West Side and I noticed many people were doing 
a two bedroom, one bath, and then converting it to three bedrooms, two bath, and all of a sudden they can get a hundred thousand more. And I like, I want to do that. And that's how I got the confidence because I'm like, if they are doing it, I can do it. And I knew values and I knew sales. And I just, I said, I can do it. And I did one and it went perfect. I did two and so on. So every year I kept consistent. And since I was a listing agent, I was a buyer's agent when I buy it. I was a listing agent. So I was making money as a selling agent, as a listing agent, and as developer. I was making money three ways, which we became very profitable. And so I want to get your opinion on something. There's a lot of real estate agents that haven't done what you have done, which is build an amazing real estate portfolio. You've done, I think, over 500 flips at this point. What's your theory on why more real estate agents don't get involved in the investment side of things and build out their own portfolio? Mindset and not knowing that they can do it. And I think it takes a lot of courage, dedication, and just like you got to work very hard because there's many aspects when you are flipping a property. You got to, it's a huge responsibility. You know, like I do a great job and I'm always constantly challenging myself. And I believe, I think the financial aspect too, because, you know, you need certain amount of money to do a flip and it's a high risk business. So people, when you play this game, as much money as you can make is even more money you can lose. So it's, it's a big game. I mean, in a property, like you can easily lose a hundred, two hundred thousand in a couple of months. So when you see those kind of situations, you know, I would say 90% of the people are out because people in general are afraid to lose money. I'm not afraid to lose money. Like I don't lose sleep over losing money. To me, it's not about the money. It's about the creation. It's about providing a better quality of life to people. So I'm never afraid to lose money or to make money, you know, either way. I think it's more about the risk involved and the limiting factors that we put in our mind. Yeah, those are good points. As we mentioned, you've got a family-owned business. You've got five sons, three of which are involved. Jonathan and Jeff have gone off to do JB2 investments and doing some investments in the Midwest, which we'll talk about here shortly. But I wanted to hear about how you balance being a mother with being basically their boss as the CEO. That's a really tricky dynamic. How do you balance that? It's a great question. Being a CEO and running multiple businesses, and that's a very stressful job. Working with my children, with my five sons, has been challenging. However, it builds character, meaning that you can have a a fight, but because there's this trust and love, you can overcome anything. Balancing the way I see balance in my life is like I focus on what I need to do right now, the next moment, the next moment together with a big mission. And to me, that create balance where I know where I'm going and where I know what I'm going to do. And as a mother, the way I have created balance, it's just by knowing that expressing my love and being available. You know, it's my kids call me, I'm available. Like no matter how busy I am, I'm always available. If I need to lose a deal because I need to be available for them, I will. 
So I'm available because I think that's a core value for me. Like it's you, my friend or my family. I'm going to be available, but I want that as also someone to be available for me because that's what's going to help me out of trouble or out of the situation that I'm not able to handle it on my own. Yeah, it sounds like it goes back to some of the lessons that you learned from your parents about their giving mentality. And I wanted to hear a little bit about if you put much pressure on this on your sons to join the family business or did you leave things up to them? I know in 2008, Jonathan had graduated around then 2008, Jonathan had graduated from USC. And as we all know, that was a difficult time economically, tough to find a job. At that point, he joined the family business. Was it an expectation on your part that the sons would join you in, in business or, or did you encourage them to find their own way? I didn't encourage them to be in the business. It was more like in Jonathan's case, he couldn't find a good job. And I just said, why don't you give it a try for real estate? And that's how he came and worked and he tried it and, you know, he find his way around. The other ones, they just came on their own. But Jonathan, I did mention to him, because you can't get a job, you know, just come and try this. You know, I'll, I'll teach you what I know. And that was, I work well together with all of the boys. It is tough. It is tough because I like excellence and, you know, and I, I strive for that. So it is difficult when they are young, you know, they don't have the same experience. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. 
Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show. This might be a little sensitive, but do you find that you have to manage some sons differently than others? Like everyone has a different personality and temperament. Is that something that you think about, about how to deal effectively with one son versus the other? You know, recently I started to do that, but before, no. One size fits all kind of thing is like, I'm, I'm tougher with my kids than with other employees because I just want to bring the best adults then. And I'm not permissible. I had always been a very strict parent. And I just think that my kids are good because I was tough. And it's the same thing in business. You've got to be tough. But I do believe it's good to relate to people accordingly to how they process things. However, I'm kind of transforming my leadership right now to that right now because I come from the old school. Tell us a little bit about the company, Neela. How many employees do you have? How many projects do you have going on right now? You're in the LA market. Talk to us a little bit about the business and maybe like your competitive edge that you feel that you have. Nila stands for Northeast Los Angeles. And we were one of that. We are the leaders in the community for flipping properties. And what we are known for is to have great designs and quality. So our competitive advantage is design, good quality, and attention to the client. You know, like if something happens after escrow, we we try to help them or during escrow. So our closing rate is like 99% because we try to work it out with the buyers when we are in escrow. And if there is any issues, we always try to make the client happy, even though it costs us money. And then how many employees and how many projects do you have going on right now? We had 17 and we are about 21. And some of them are, most of them are construction. 21 projects that are, are flips at the moment? 17 projects. They not all flips. Uh, some are flips, some are new construction and apartment building, small lots of division. It's a mix. Okay. So we talked a little bit about when Jonathan joined the business in 2008 and I lived through this 2008 and the, you know, the difficulty in the real estate market was really a tough time. At that point, I wanted to hear just how you handled 2008 and what you went through. How many homes had you flipped at that point? You had built quite a sizable flipping company at that point when 2008 came around, correct? Yes. It was very devastating because we lost everything and more. However, we didn't owe money to anyone. So in 2000, temporarily, I went to do more of my brokerage to raise more money. But, you know, one day I was thinking, you know, I come from a wealthy family. So I'm like, okay, this is the time. So I asked one of my brothers if he would lend me money. And that's how we started the business again. And then we raised some friends and family money. But my main support was my brother and then some other friends. So it was family and friends, basically. And that's how we relaunched the company. I had studied trustee sales and foreclosures in 1988. 
I knew how to do the business and I'm like, okay, this is the way to go because everything is a foreclosure. And I worked with banks where I was a an area manager for them. And then I did the trustee sales. So that combinedly just started to grow, 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 grow. When 2008 hit and the crisis really was felt, how many projects did you have on the books that you had to deal with? We had maybe 10, but every one of them, we were losing like half of the money. It was just a lot of money being lost. And when it hit, you kind of not believe it. So I think that we didn't react as quickly as we needed to react. And the longer you took to sell every project, the more money we will be losing. But at that point, you realize, okay, you either sell it to pay or there was no possibility at that point to keep it as a rental because the financing was tough. And it was just a total disaster. But what I did, I cleared out the books of everything and then restart like new in 2009, in the summer of 2009. So what was that like for you just from a psychological standpoint? I think you had to let most of the employees go. I, I believe you kept your accountant yeah. from the story that I heard. Yeah, I kept my accountant in like the maintenance guy who took care of all the properties and all of that. It was difficult, but you know, as you see your projections and you don't have money, like my philosophy, don't make people work is you can pay them. So I like, I'll better let them know right away so they can find another job. And from the psychologically part, I was just, I wasn't like devastated because I have my children and I have my health. And I just was more like, like, how can I make money right now? So what I know, like I can make money without any money is selling real estate. So I started hitting doors, the phones, cold calling knocking on doors, talking to past clients, just make a lot of moves to make money right away. And I did, you know, because once I hit the phones, why I start talking to people and work hard, you know, it's just a matter of time. And it was very quickly. I mean, once I start doing that, I start getting money within two or three months because the cycle stay about two, three months when you are an agent to see your results. And it was just, I wasn't thinking like, oh, we lost all of this. It's more like, what? how can I make money right now? Because I couldn't think about the past. I needed to be present. I needed to put food on the table, pay my mortgage, pay car, gas, everything, the basic. So it sounds like you sold everything off, kind of had a clean slate to start. And then when Jonathan started, it really, in some ways, was a great time to be entering the business and buying property. So what kind of things were you seeing in terms of opportunities? What was available around 2000, let's say nine, as things not necessarily improved, but you were able to buy stuff at fire sale prices. Talk to us about some of the deals that you were seeing. One of the first deal that Jonathan and I bought the trustee sale was like, we bought it like for 70,000, sold it for 140. And I, I'm estimating the numbers, but you know, we just, we did it like in 70, day, in 42 days. And we bought it at the auction, just kind of clean it up that we say in the business, put it in the market. We had 21 offers because things always sell at the right price. And so I made sure that the appraisal, everything went through. I will meet every appraiser because like, is you provide 
the appraiser with the information, then it's easier for them to bring the properties at value because in those days, the appraisers were afraid and one of the issues we will have is having the values, not what we were selling it for. So I made sure I went to every single appraisal and I prepared myself and most of them came into value. Maybe one or two percent didn't, but most of them. So it was just being focused in what we were doing. But there were plenty of deals at the trusty sale. There were so many areas. There were more, but they were less discounted. And then you had the probates. But we mostly bought trusty sales. So that home that you sold for one forty, what would that home sell for today? Today, it will probably sell for about a million one. Over a million. Wow. Pretty wild. Yeah, keep all of them. Yeah, I wanted to back up too. I heard you say something about the appraisals. You would go to those and make sure, would you follow the appraiser around to make sure that it appraised? And what would you do to make sure that the appraisal came in? I think the number one thing would be very respectful of the appraiser because they are the experts and they are they get paid to get their expert opinion. Instead of throwing information to them, I will just like be there early because most of the appraisals are earlier than the time they say. So I try to be there half an hour before the appointment and just open everything so it's easy for them. And I will say, you know, I brought some information. Would you like me to share that with you? And most of them, they will say, yes, yes. And I will make a copy for them and then kind of walk them through. And I said, I had been at this house and I will describe them because I was previewing all the properties too. When you describe to them, they have questions and then you create rapport with them. And it's kind of that there is a mutual respect that's built because you're giving them information that's helpful to them. And then in return, they want to bring the value because they know it's important for the buyer and for the seller. And obviously you have those that they don't even want to look at you, you know, but then you just like, you still provide the information, but they don't want to talk to you and you, you have to be okay with that too. I did a flip, one of my very first ones, and it was in an area that was really rough and gentrifying and the, it was being sold for a price that in this neighborhood had never sold at those levels. And at first the bank was saying, how do you justify this price? And I remember meeting the appraiser and just like really having to give a detail of my cost, like all that went into it. Did you ever do something like that of like, here's the cost that what I put into the house? Yeah, I will make a list of improvements. And depending if it was a lot of money we spent, I will detail it with money. And if it wasn't a lot, I will just mention them because I found that it was kind of easier because they will put the pricing and not me. And, you know, if the paint cost me $7,000, they might put it at 15000 So I kind of, depending on the flip, I will put prices or not. Uh, if I felt we spent a lot of money, yes, I will give them the pricing. Or if they ask you, San, San Jose will ask you, well, how much do you spend? And I will say, well, this much. And they were okay with that and they will do their own numbers. And it was very particular, I think. Real estate is not one size fits all. It's more like, what does this client needs? What this house need? And really be focused on that. I heard you say that you tried to control the comps to some degree, or maybe Jonathan told me this. Talk to me about that strategy where you would buy and try to control the comps. Can you talk about that a bit? I mean, when I pull up the comps, 
we were the comps because we had the most whole closing. So most of the properties were our own properties. And I think when he said control the comps because we were leading the pricing. So in essence, we were controlling the market. And also, you know, whenever there was a high sale, usually I will get a call from the appraiser and I will, you know, explain, yeah, that's, had you seen this house? It was more of a conversation, but at the end of the day, it was the appraiser's job, but we provide enough data to make the job easier to come to value. I wanted to hear a little bit if you see any similarities of what we're going through now to 2008. Does that concern you at all or do you have any thoughts on that? I never concerned about the market. But I'm very cautious because after the experience of 2008, I went back to see, okay, what worked, what didn't work. And one of the things that I noticed is that we were projecting the price to what will it sell for instead of how bad is we said the value is, you know, a million dollars and we bring the price down to 900. So we have a cushion of error in case the market change, right? So what I had seen recently, the market kind of went down and then right now it went up, but not in the high price range. I will say a million and in LA, a million and five or less is still very competitive, which it makes the prices stay strong. Has your strategy stayed the same throughout the years in terms of your flips, or would you say it's kind of changed as you've progressed and grown and developed? It's always changing. I think as, uh, one of the key is changing with what the clients need, what the buyers need. You know, at one point, everything was this color, that color. So I'm always like doing changes and see through the open houses, how do people react to it? So I think changing the finishes and staying on trend is very, very important. It's like clothing. You know, people will be attracted more to something that's up today, not, not from 2000 or 2020. You know, it changes yearly. So always changing the designs is very important. As CEO, is that something that you enjoy and get involved in is the design aspect of doing the flips? I do enjoy that. But I have a team that does that and I just kind of look over and, and give my opinion, but I let them do what they need to do. But I still preview properties and if I see ideas that I like, I send it to them. Let's try this. But most of the time they come out with the design. I really want to hear a little bit about, I talked with Jonathan and he said that you can be really intimidating. You, you, you seem like a very kind very nice lady. But he said one of your superpowers is that you're actually quite intimidating. So I wanted to hear about that. Like, do you consider yourself that way? And how do you use it to your advantage? I would say that I'm focused and persistent. And I like to really be in the moment. It's very hard for someone to distract me. So I'm very intentional I want to ask you real quick, how do you develop that? How did you develop being present, being in the moment, being intentional? That's a practice. Yeah, I'm just really interested. I love what I do. I love real estate and I love people. And sometimes you've got to be tough to get the job done. You've got to be tough so people don't lie to you. 
you got to be tough so people feel like, okay, I can't get away with baloney here, you know? And I think for me, it's more about having an integrous relationship. And if I don't see something right, I will say it. I said, you know, I see these things. I don't really keep a lot of things in my mind. And I try to do it in a professional way. Or if it's something different, I can cast, I can do whatever I need to do, you know, to get my point across. With all you've got going on, how's your sleep at night? Does it, do you worry about the business or do you, do you just know that things are going to work out one way or the other? No, I never worry about, you know, like for my sleep. Um, I have a routine that I follow and I like to be peaceful and I sleep every day, like eight, sometimes nine hours. And there is moments that, yeah, you feel like, okay, how am I going to do this? But I just kind of said, I can't do anything right now. I'll take care of that tomorrow. And, you know, I just try to sleep and rest. Otherwise, I can't be at my highest potential. You've succeeded at a level in what's largely a male-dominated industry. How would you say you've managed this? We've got some women listeners too. What would you say to them that how they could replicate what you've done or some lessons that you could give to women that are in the real estate field? What would you say to them? I just be you and the way I see the world, people want to help you be successful. And especially men, you know, they want to see you be successful because remember, they were raised by a mother. Most likely the teacher was a female. So they already have a good relationship with a female. So I feel like it's not being a man or a woman is, you know, are you willing to work hard? Are you willing to learn? Are you willing to give your best? And if you are willing to play the way you need to play, not really, oh, okay, I'm going to get the deal because I'm a good looking or I have a good body or something. That doesn't work. You need to work hard, study, execute, be consistent, and people will look at you because of your professionalism, not because of your looks, not because of anything else. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. 
Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. I wanted to kind of go back to some of your early days, and I wanted to hear just some stories of the adversity that you must have experienced just coming to the U.S., English is not your first language, but yet you still outproduced many of your English speaking counterparts. Talk to me about like this unstoppable nature and how can like other people like myself, listeners develop some of these qualities that, that you have. I want to first start with the stories of adversity. What, what was it like early on? Do you have any kind of things that you recollect that uh, come to mind? Yeah. I mean, when I divorced my first husband, I was basically pretty young and I didn't really fight a lot. So I just wanted my boys. I didn't care about the money. As long as I have the boys, to me, that was everything I want. I even have no money to put gas or nothing. But again, you know, I started selling real estate and back in the day, LA Times was huge on rental. So I like, I need to make money in a week. So I call everybody owners that were leasing properties. And I said, if I rent your house, will you pay me a commission? And I called maybe 20 people and two of them say yes. And I called open houses with my two boys and we hold the open houses and we rented on the weekend, the houses. And I made like $8,000 because these were expensive homes. You know, they were like seven, $8,000 rent. Was that a strategy of yours was to go up market and, and choose a higher market or that's just how it worked out? I went for the higher number because I felt like those people don't want to work as hard. So let me do the work, you know, make their life easy. And that's, I chose a high price because I felt like those were more likely to pay me a commission. What about some stories of adversity when you got started in the flipping business? Did you have any kind of run-ins with contractors that maybe they didn't take you seriously or you, they tried to rip you off because they f- maybe assumed you didn't know what you were doing? Did you have anything like that that happened to you? You know, at the beginning, no, because I was every day at the job site on top on top of things. I think when I started to make more volume and I wasn't as so hands-on on every project, that's when people start stealing. And I mean, I just fire them and just let them go because they're going to steal more and more because somebody that's rotten, it's just going to get worse. So I'll better take the loss quickly than 
be bleeding for months and months and months. So I just like, I don't really have a high tolerance for people that are liars. So I'm just like, okay, you know, this is not working out. Let's part ways now. And sometimes I pay the money to leave just so I can have peace of mind on the, on the job and keep moving forward because my peace of mind will bring me a lot more money than the 10,000 or whatever money I pay to the contractor to move, to leave and not have an issue. Yeah. They say you can't do a good deal with a bad person. Tough to do. No. I mean, they're just going to continue to lie no matter what they say. They already prove you that they, they're not going to do it. So we've got a lot of beginning real estate investors that are maybe thinking about doing their first flip. What would you say in your mind are like the pros of doing a flip versus the cons for someone just getting started in, in real estate and kind of thinking about taking that first step? I will start with the cons. Be ready to lose money. And if you are comfortable with that, do it. If you're not, then don't do it because your chances of losing money is kind of the 50-50. And the pros is that you can make a good amount of money. And I will say everything starts from the money and find a good lender. Don't overpromise an investor, like underpromise and overdeliver because there will be issues. And if you underpromise, like I work with investors too, and I like, I know we can make a hundred and twenty thousand on a deal, but I don't say that. I say we're going to make ninety thousand. So I always have I underpromise and overdeliver, and that gives me a peace of mind because now I had room to make mistakes. I had room to spend more money on things that I didn't see. The same thing with the budgets. If it's a hundred, I always put twenty percent more, and if you put less profit, more work, then you're going to be safe. And if the deal still works, you're going to make money no matter what. But if you're already stretching the value, underbidding that we have, and overpromising like, oh, we're going to make this much, you know, it's, it's just a, a recipe for a disaster. Would you recommend to somebody that's thinking about doing a flip to get their real estate agent's license? Or is it not necessary? It's not necessary. I think what the person has to be an expert is, is in valuing the property. Can you really sell it for that much? Because if your price is wrong, everything else is not going to work. You know, as you say, oh, this house is going to sell for a million two, but you ended up selling it for a million one and your profit was 75,000. You are done no matter what. So I think being over not being realistic will lead you to don't manipulate the numbers. The numbers are the numbers. You gotta be, does it work? Is the number, what number you feel comfortable to resell and go always for the lower number. I want to hear about your kind of coming plans in the next five to 10 years. You've renovated over 500 homes. How do you see the next five to 10 years unfolding for you and the company? I think we'll do an additional 1,000 flips with Maybe the kids leading, not so much myself. They are in training right now. And also I would like to, I start building apartment buildings and I would like to have a bigger portfolio in LA of apartment buildings. And one of my dreams is also to create financial education for children and young people like teenagers, because I strongly believe that 
when you are able to manage your financial in a healthy way, you're going to have a healthier life. And I believe there is a lack of information for kids and teenagers and even grown-up people. Everything, I always say we're not in real estate, we are in financing because it's a financing has to work whether you have investors or you have a car money loan or a line of credit, that has to work in order for you to be successful. And the same thing goes for, you know, for your personal life. We don't have two different lives. It's the same life. It's, if you don't manage your money correctly, no matter how much money you make, you're always going to be broke. It's kind of amazing the lack of financial education that we don't receive growing up in our schools and I don't know how to change that, but it sounds like you've got some ideas. And do you have any books or anything like that you've read or that you recommend to people who are trying to get a better handle on their personal finances and understanding it? There is a rich dad for that book that I think is easy to read to understand more about the finances. But to me, uh, the way I had learned through is just being observant of my own spendings. And really not spending more than what I make. I mean, I think finance is just for me common sense. You know, if I make a hundred thousand, you know, why am I going to spend 140 and put it on a credit card that's going to charge me 30%? I don't know what the rates are on credit cards or 20% because it's just going to put you in a bigger hole. So it's like the best way don't get in debt is you can't pay it within 30 days. Don't even buy it. I mean, simple. Yeah, it is simple. There's a a good Charles Dickens quote from uh, one of his books that says, income, 20 pounds, expenses, 21 pounds, result, misery, income, 20 pounds, expenses, 19 pounds, result, happiness. Basically, just keep your expenses below what you're making. And it's it's pretty straightforward, but it's tough, it seems, for our culture to do. Yeah, it's more about the mindset, you know, delayed gratification or instant gratification and you know, are you willing to weigh so you are healthier and sleep better? I wanted to hear if you have any controversial opinions in real estate that maybe some other people don't uh, would uh, agree with. Like conventional wisdom says one thing, but you you have the opposite opinion. Anything like that? I believe you make your own market, you make your own result, regardless of what the market is. And stay informed, you know, like interest rate and things, those are very important. I see the market 365 days a week. And in regards to the rates, you know, I try to stay on top of what the rates are just to get a general idea of what the buyers are able to afford. And that gives me a better sense where we're going. But I stay away from reading about real estate, you know, projects. Things that I think are negative to my mind because I don't want to get my mind infected with negativity. So I try to stay on the positive side and exercising the power within me to make things happen. Yeah, it can be easy to get caught up in the doom and gloom reports and really be influenced by that and and kind of stall your own progress forward. Yeah, people are always buying houses. They'll continue to buy. So it's an industry that will continue to grow and finding ways to make it grow, you know, because if it's not this way, then, you know, I'm trying multiple things right now, including I just got a hotel in Tidal. So I diversify and I think everything is seasonal. Sometimes you will have models this, models that. And, and I think, you know, it's just 
I just don't believe in, I think what I believe in is in adjusting accordingly to what the clients need, because the clients are the ones that tell you the truth. You know, are, is your house staying a long time in the market? Are they selling quickly? What's going on? I feel that my news come from me really being in touch with the buyers. I wanted to hear a little bit about Jonathan's segue from doing flips in LA to doing multifamily in the Midwest. Has has that influenced you at all, his strategy? What do you think of it? I'm, I wanted to hear your thoughts on it. I'm really proud of him. I think he's doing a fantastic job and that's something that's working for them. And I think it's a good cash flow strategy. And Jonathan always wanted to do that. And I'm I mean, I applaud him for doing that. And he's been very successful together with Jeff, his brother. And I think it's a magnificent strategy. I just kind of the LA girl that wants to make things happen here because we just need housing. And I want to be a bit standing support for LA. And then you had mentioned wanting to do some multifamily. Do you have a portfolio now that you manage in terms of rentals or is that something that you plan to build coming on down in the next few years? I have a portfolio and I want to grow the portfolio. And I think it's pretty, rentals are pretty strong in LA. I'm not sure about the appreciation with so many things happening, but at least I know that it can be challenging to get the cash flow. It said is you have any strategies where you buy it right, fix right. Otherwise, the numbers are not going to work. You have to buy it right. Right. Yeah, that's key is to buy it right. That's where the money is made, right? Yeah. And get the right loan too. Are there any other asset classes that you don't invest in, but you think about a lot? Like, do you ever get fall prey to what I call shiny object syndrome? Whether it's like, I get on Twitter and there's all kinds of different asset classes that people discuss, whether it's self-storage or industrial or multifamily. There's so many different different asset classes. Do you ever think about other asset classes that maybe like pull you away from your main strategy? No, I just stick to what I know how to do. And I'm very focused. I don't get distracted by things like that. That's a great quality. I love it. Do you have any other investments outside of real estate? No. And why is that? Because I'm not knowledgeable. I want to learn more, but I had been, I'm very busy and I, I just, it will distract me and from my focus right now. That's why I haven't done that. I interviewed a gentleman uh, who came out with a book called The Insider's Guide to Real Estate. And he talked about just that you've got way more advantages with real estate than you do, let's say, like in the stock market or some other markets that you could invest in. You've got a competitive advantage knowing your market that you really don't have in investing in stocks and things like that. Yeah. I just like to invest in what I know because that makes me feel like I can make better decisions. Yeah. So I wanted to do a quick fire round here as we wrap up. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk today and telling your story. It's really amazing what you've been able to accomplish. And uh, I've taken a lot away from this that I'm going to be thinking about. But I wanted to hear about first your worst job. My worst job? I mean, I always work for myself. My worst job will be taking uh, sellers that they're not emotionally stable. So like if you already see the red flags run, you know, like don't even entertain them. Then even if you need the money, 
because they're going to cause so much headache and money in essence. So I think anyone who is not emotionally stable, I wouldn't pay them right now because it's just such a high risk. What are some of those red flags that you can tell somebody might be problematic, somebody you want to run from? People who are like when you get to an appointment, they are drunk. People who are just like not coherent in their thinking decisions. And you can see that maybe, you know, just like you get a sense of the person in that few minutes you are with them. And then I think it's up to the person, but I would say that will be my worst job, taking people who are not well. And I say emotionally because I don't know what's going on with them and I'm not a doctor, but I mean, you can tell when somebody's having some sort of issues. I want to hear about any entrepreneurial or real estate heroes that you have. My father and my brothers, I really like how they manage business and family and how caring they are and always striving to do a win-win for all. Did any of your other siblings come to the U.S.? One, but they all have businesses in Mexico, a couple of them, but I'm the only one that has done the business in the United States in a way that's, I mean, they brought some business, but with the structure of Mexico, but me building something from nothing has only been me in the United States. That's amazing. I want to hear what success means to you. Opportunity, growth, giving back providing quality of life to everyone around me, my family, and everyone around us. I mean, that's success and maintaining a good, caring heart and mind and unity. I mean, it's just more about a being of a human being in a healthy way. Yeah. And it seems to you from just listening to you, it sounds like the money is just kind of a byproduct. Like what you really enjoy is the process of, of real estate, the relationships and the creativity and building something and creating housing for people. Yeah, definitely. I mean, relationships all around and just providing something great. We need more great things in this world. We don't need more negativity. We don't need more problems. We need solutions. That's awesome. Marissa, this is a great place to stop. I really appreciate your time and hearing your story. For our listeners that, again, are, are maybe thinking about taking their first step and doing a flip or getting started in real estate investments, what kind of words of wisdom would you have for them? What kind of takeaway from our talk here would you like them to walk away with? I would say that try to do your first deal with somebody that's experienced. At least you learn. It's better to share profits with somebody than to lose money. I would say if I was beginning, I would start with somebody that's already done it, that has the resources and, you know, even strive for a long-term relationship with them. I think it's a safer way to go and, you know, don't be afraid, but support yourself with the right people. Marissa, thanks so much for talking again. How can people learn more about you if they wanted to reach out and uh, get in touch with you? They can reach out to me through Instagram. My account is Marissa Solis, this, which is B-I-Z. They can text me too. I can give you my number, which is 323-770-4510. And my Twitter account is Marissa Solis at Nila Marissa. Oh, you are on Twitter? Yes. 
I'm going to start using it more, but I do have an account. Tell me the Twitter account again, because I, I tried to find you and I couldn't. Marissa Solis, at, at Nila Marissa. Okay. N-E-L-A Marissa. Did you find me? I'll definitely find you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm on Twitter a lot. So uh, is Jonathan encouraging you to get more active on Twitter? Well, yes. And Moses encouraged me. I just need to follow. I need to do it. And I'm going to start. I'm starting today. <laughs> yeah, we didn't. I don't think we touched on your, your talk at Reconvene. What was that conference like for you? What was it like getting up on stage? I, I did want to hear about that. I mean, it was quite amazing because Moses had a way to interview that it was geared towards that audience there. And I felt that at the end of the conversation is to give hope and encouragement to people. And I think we did that, which through the market, especially during that time, the market was down. And I just enjoy a lot because the events are amazing, like five-star event and and the people were remarkable to everyone who was there. And I interact with, they were like world-class people. Yeah, he does a fantastic job. And as an interviewer, he put on a great event from what I understand. I will definitely link in our show notes to your interview and, and reconvene in general. But yeah, it seems like an amazing event. And um, I'd love to be able to go sometime maybe next year and, and be a part of that. Because it's like you said, just amazing, high quality people. Yeah, let's go together. There you go. I'd love to meet you in person, have, have yeah. a meal together. Yeah. All right, Marissa, thank you so much. I, again, appreciate thank your time, you. love your story. And uh, I, I really hope that a lot of people get to hear this. Thank you. And I'm, you know, I'm happy to help people. That's my mission in life. That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Bye. Okay, folks, that's all I had for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the show and I'll see you back here real soon. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.